Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. Today we're speaking with Charles Sturt lecturer, Dr Christy Campion, about right-wing terrorism. Christy is an historian by training and has undertaken archival research in the UK and Ireland, focusing on the complex and diverse history of terrorism. Christy has lectured and tutored in terrorism studies to undergrad students and postgrad students and is currently working on the first comprehensive history of terrorism in Australia. Christy's PhD thesis was nominated for the Terrorism Research Initiative's Best Doctoral Thesis in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies in 2017. So Christy, thanks so much for talking with CSU Stories today. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So this is such an interesting topic and highly relevant at the moment, Christy, but tell me what sparked your interest in studying terrorism and the history of terrorism? How did that all come about for you? I started, I originally became involved in terrorism studies in around 2009 uh, at the time when I was doing my history undergraduate at James Cook University in Cairns. Uh, so that was my first sort of introduction to the topic and following on with that, uh, I was soon approached by a staff to do an honours thesis in terrorism and then that soon uh, transformed into a Doctor of Philosophy in Terrorism History. And so once you, I guess you got into terrorism, it became really your specialty, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think that um, particularly in, in Australia, well back in 2009, it was still something that wasn't terribly familiar with us. We hadn't yet reached that sort of saturation uh, of knowledge mm -hmm. that we currently have. And so it, all, it was a, uh, a brand new world as far as research in, uh, in history went, that's for sure. <laughs> it's almost, yeah, it's like an emerging new field of history research because obviously there's been terrorism and ideologically based terrorism for a long time if you think back to even things like Ireland which you've obviously researched and all of that sort of thing. But this new wave of terrorism in a way has become so prevalent in people's minds, obviously communicated through the media. So that's also been reflected through the academic circles now that there's specialists in terrorism. And what's, what's right-wing terrorism? Can you explain to us what that is? Uh, so right-wing terrorism is, uh, I, I would say it, it has a very long significant history. So internationally speaking, when we talk about right-wing terrorism, we generally start uh, in the United States with the first iteration of the, uh, of the Ku Klux Klan. In Australia, obviously that story is different and, and you also see sort of distinctions in how it has evolved and manifested in Western countries throughout Europe as well uh, and Israel. When you mentioned the Ku Klux Klan, I thought of course, and is right-wing terrorism, I guess, more born of Western culture? At this stage, the research would indicate that that is, uh, that is the case, that right-wing extremism tends to be more prevalent in Western countries. And it is very much tied, in a way, to, um, to fascist ideology as well. So particularly sort of around 1920, when you've got the rise of Benito Mussolini in Italy, mm. you know, Hitler's starting to develop his own ideology and his own fascist uh, National Socialist Party in Germany. You, you, that's when you start seeing movements around the world that might have previously been uh, pervaded by certain ideas of um, racial exclusivism, like with the KKK, mm. as we start seeing them actually unite with a cogent ideology that provides this worldview and a projected end state, like the sort of 
state that they want to see. So, I mean, when I think of terrorism too, I think of the action of terrorism. So someone blowing up a plane or a bus or holding people hostage or... But I suppose terrorism really refers also just to the practice of, a, of the ideological movement as well. So you could consider Hitler a terrorist and everything that he did acts of terrorism. Would that be right? Well, so there's an entire sort of subset of terrorism studies that looks at state-sponsored terrorism. Obviously, Nazi Germany, Germany is one example, but there are other examples that are quite common. Uh, um, the Bolshevik Revolution is obviously a, a big mm -hmm. one for it. Some would cast certain activities by the United States for state terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to focus on non-state terrorism. When it comes to the right wing, uh, generally speaking, you know, what we use is, is the term extremist because for a lot of them, they're, they're not terrorists yet. <laughs> they yeah. have potential, but they're not yet. So when we talk about their violence, we call it extremism because it, it's more referring to their belief system than it is mm -hmm. to their activities. So they might engage in street violence, in, uh, in property damage, uh, that sort of thing. So not outright terrorist acts yet. Obviously, that, that did change with Christchurch as well. That's right. So, they've, yes, where they've come from practicing a set of beliefs, you know, they might be putting things online or talking to their, you know, people at the pub about it to actually carrying out acts of violence in the name of their beliefs. Yeah, exactly. So, tell me about the history of, I guess, right-wing terrorism or extremism in Australia. I mean, I think in Australia we feel like we're relaxed, we're happy, we give everyone a fair go, we're cosmopolitan and we're diverse and multicultural but so we might feel surprised that these kinds of views exist here and this type of extremism festers here but has it always been the case that it's existed here? Are we just sort of being more aware of it now? What's that history been like for Australia? There are a couple of contending theories on that particular case so there are some researchers in Australia who do argue that uh, that Australia has always had ethno-exclusivist policies, so the White Australia policy, obviously, yeah. uh, and that sort of those sorts of policies do provide a bit of a nascent breeding ground for ideas that then can uh, evolve and become extreme. Mm -hmm. In Australia, uh, early on, we did have obviously we did have racism. That's no surprise to anyone. So we've always had that sort of racist and intolerant sentiment. We've always had people that believed that Australia um, should be a white country or, or that it always was a white country irrespective of historical facts. Now during the interwar period, so around 1920s, 1930s, mm. we see some of these ideas merge with the ideology uh, of fascism uh, that we were talking about earlier. So this actually provides a vehicle for them, a projected end state. So some of the movements at the time are groups like the New Guard, um, the Australia First movement, and early formal fascist parties like the National Socialist Party and that sort of thing. Even though fascism was considered to be defeated after World mm. War II, uh, mm. conventionally at least, that meant that, that those states were defeated, but it didn't mean the ideology was defeated. And although the automatic assumption would be, oh, okay, the, the horrors and the evils of the Holocaust, you know, that has uh, delegitimized the ideology. But it didn't uh, because mm. some people went, well, no, uh, you know, people started to deny the Holocaust. They started to claim that um, Hitler was a patsy for, um, for a, a great conspiracy theory involving the Jews and that sort of thing. So that's when we start seeing groups like the Australian League of Rights come around and we start seeing the proliferation of these ideas in what we call subcultural networks. So 
skinhead groups essentially, they might be united in the defiance of the government or they might have conspiratorial ideas about the government or they might genuinely be national socialists. In time that changed again and we saw a, a surge of activity particularly in the 80s. That was also around the world at the, at the time as well, so right-wing extremism generally speaking surged in the 80s. Uh, and we had National Action, uh, who had a campaign in Sydney, and we had the Australian Nationalist Movement, who launched a firebombing campaign in Perth against Perth's Asian population. So again, they, they didn't last long, and they were eventually subdued by police. But again, what we saw is, okay, these people, these ideas, they're hanging around, and, and they're mm -hmm. persisting in subcultural networks again. In recent years, uh, obviously since 2009 broadly, we saw right-wing extremism surge internationally. And that was echoed in Australia and what we started to see was international groups start Australian chapters or Australian chapters um, form networks with international groups. It's fascinating to think that even as far back as 1920-1930 there were extreme nationalist groups forming in Australia. I mean they didn't have the benefit of the internet or you know sophisticated communication channels but those ideas even from overseas or even bred internally were taking root and we've I guess to see them emerge or re-emerge in different forms over time. I guess almost in response to a set of circumstances of whatever the boogeyman is at the time seems to influence Absolutely. whatever, yeah, the type of extremism. I mean, I remember, you know, when that first, I can't remember his name, but in the 90s there was a Holocaust denier and they didn't want him to come to Australia and it was really shocking. And I think now those sorts of opinions are everywhere on the internet. If you are looking for an extreme opinion, you'll find someone to share it with, which is quite scary. So yeah. is this just the latest form, this Islamophobia and this exclusionary nationalism that we're seeing now and it'll continue to morph over time or...? <laughs> uh, well, a couple, of, a couple of answers to that. So essentially after, after World War II, what you start seeing is the growth of uh, an international movement that calls itself White Pride Worldwide. Um, that, that's our sort of slogan or, or catchphrase. But even before World War II, what we were seeing was people who had these belief systems, they were travelling and meeting uh, with fascists, prominent fascists in Italy, in, in, um, in Britain and in Germany. So even back then, you know, they, they didn't have the internet to connect, no, but they were still actually making the journey to go and form those connections to, to validate their worldview. That continued and, and for a while in Australia what we saw was Australian right-wing extremists reaching out to, to prominent individuals in the US, the UK and the EU uh, and it will be sort of an interchange of ideas. Now effectively in 1995 is when we can sort of map this changing because obviously that's when you start seeing the internet become more prominent mm -hmm. and it's in that same year that a prominent Klansman, uh, Don Black, established Stormfront and that is remains the longest running right-wing extremist blog mm -hmm. on the internet. It's still there. They don't, Goodness. They don't outwardly advocate attacks, but it, it becomes a, uh, an echo chamber for people to go to who already have these ideas or want their ideas to be reinforced and replayed mm -hmm. back to them in that sort of sense. So what we can really say is that right-wing extremists are digital natives. They've always mm. been online. They, you know, they do sometimes recruit in, uh, in surface web areas, uh, you know, in, on Facebook and that sort of thing. But what we see is that essentially their, their views become too extreme for these moderated platforms and they retreat to unmoderated platforms like Gab, 
return to school and, and those sorts of areas. And what, what those places on the internet do is they, they provide a, a meeting ground, a place to talk about um, ideas, a place to talk about strategies. And really it's where sympathizers can meet with other people who share their worldview and uh, validate or inform their belief system. And uh, essentially this, this provides an important sort of kickstart to the radicalization process, which can lead to either increasing extremism and eventually terrorism if, if they go that far. Yes, I mean, I wonder too what, what their goal is. When, is it, and perhaps it varies across the participants in these types of movements. Some just, as you say, want their own views validated and that makes them feel good. Or ultimately, do these movements want to achieve anything in particular? The right wing is notoriously difficult to define when it comes to that because you know, when, it, when we're talking about jihadist terrorism, we go, okay, well, we know what they want. They all mm. want a caliphate. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of agreeance there, uh, a lot of consensus there. In the extreme right, that's not the case. So you might have, what, generally speaking, we go, okay, if we're going to define them, then we're talking about groups that authoritarian, that are anti-democratic, and obviously they have that exclusionary nationalism. And generally speaking, they tend to advocate ethno-states or a monocultural state. However, that's by no means universal. So there is no consensus on how they envisage, envisage their, their perfect society to look. And so when they do go onto these platforms and they are talking uh, to, to other people, realistically, uh, what they're doing is uh, for a lot of them, it's just air. They're just talking. Um, mm. But what they generally start to believe is that modern society is caught in this crisis and that society, their society, our society, uh, is either decaying or already has decayed and it's departed from their ideal version of how life should be. And so they start to think, okay, my, my way of life is under threat by some imagined other. And this is why, as you mentioned earlier, you start seeing them targeting. Initially, they actually targeted communists uh, as their um, primary enemy, but then you start seeing them target immigrants, homosexuals, and now, obviously, um, they, they target Muslim immigrants specifically. Mm. And what they do is they, they go, okay, this outgroup is, is imperiling my way of life and the only way to ensure our survival uh, is through violent revolution. So it's a polarized worldview and it externalizes blame so that they'll never go, okay, um, I have these grievances that are drawn from perhaps my own actions or my own failures. And so they go, oh no, this isn't my fault. This is the fault of, of um, the Australian political apparatus or the fault of immigrants or, or so on and so forth. So what they then do is they then try and prescribe, okay, this is how I think my perfect society should be and they a lot of them go okay this is how um, sexuality should be monitored you know this, this is how this is how couples should be becoming engaged you know so um, mm. no mixed no mixed race couples for example mm. and they start going okay well we don't want dissent um, we, we claim to have the monopoly on truth so we don't want any left-wing parties so we want to get rid of the greens or you know stuff like that mm. but at the same time because they argue so much amongst themselves we can't go okay this is exactly what their end state would look like we just sort of get elements of it from their from their propaganda generally and does that mean, because I guess they have a lack of clarity of vision or as you say end state, does that mean it makes it really difficult to counter right-wing terrorism? In a way, I suppose it does uh, from a policing point of view because 
they, because they're not actually united and because they are so fractured, it does make it difficult to go, okay, which group of all these groups is most likely to catalyse into violence? Which group is most likely to pose a threat to the, the community and, and to Australian safety? So it is difficult. Generally speaking, when it comes to jihadist terrorism, we go, okay, we can prescribe these groups. And if this other group starts having contact with a prescribed group, we can start making assessments of the threat that they pose. With the right wing, essentially in the in the 80s, an American right wing extremist called um, David Lane started going, actually, no, there's a way we can achieve our violent revolution and not get caught. And this is when you start seeing the right talk about and explore ideas regarding what we call legalist resistance or lone actor terrorism. So. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not David Lane, it was Lily Bean. So essentially they, they have this strategy which is that if, if it's a lone person engaging in a terrorist act without any centralised command, without any control, control structure, that they're a lot harder to be picked up on and detected by law enforcement. And that in turn enhances the, the likelihood of operational success. So essentially when it comes to the extreme right, if they're not part of an organisation, well, you, they're very difficult to prescribe, they're very difficult to track and monitor, and when they do rise up and launch an attack, it's often done in such a way that it's very difficult authorities to, to prevent because they're often they use very simple, simple weapons like firearms uh, or a knife. Or a car. Yeah, or a mm. car, exactly. So I, I feel like it's um, that they know where the, where the flaws are in the system and they're able to exploit that. And so, and talking about all of this, and, and you live your life in, in researching and studying this, how frightened should we be? I mean, we don't obviously want to, as a person living your life day to day, who's not part of an extremist movement, you don't want to live your life feeling afraid. But it all sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think in Australia, we, we're not always really interested in confronting the difficult or somewhat repulsive parts of our community or our history. And so, we, you know, we do turn a blind eye to a lot of things, I would say. And I think the, the primary thing we need to do with, with right-wing extremism is actually confront it head-on, confront their ideas, confront mm. the narratives that they perpetuate. Because if you're, uh, you know, in a, in a vulnerable category and you get fed these ideas that your way of life is under attack and that all the... The, the woe that you've experienced either in society or in your personal life is someone else's fault, mm. then you might find these ideas attractive. And so I think we need to actually go, okay, what are these ideas? And we need to demonstrate how they're incompatible with our way of life and our own values rather than just condemning them. Because I don't think condemning mm. them is enough because if you're actually sympathetic to this worldview and you have politicians and um, academics and industry leaders just condemning it, well, they're actually not going to, that's not going to resonate with everyone. And a lot of people, that will actually feed into their narrative of being oppressed and being in peril. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. Drive them further towards the radicalization process. But if we well, go, okay, right. this is they'll hang on to their beliefs bad. even more determinedly because exactly. they, they're seeing opposition and they think, well, I'm onto something here, I'm going to stick with it. Exactly. And so we need to be really fearless and go, okay, this is what the fascist end state looks like. This, you know, for example, well, let's take one of the whole side steps of this debate has been freedom of speech and hate speech. Mm. Like, well, okay, but if you have a fascist state, 
you're not guaranteed freedom of speech, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know what the reality of a fascist state is like. <laughs> exactly, and I think particularly with the younger audiences, you know, uh, the Third Reich is something you get taught in history class. <laughs> you know, there's no lived experience with fascism. And so we need to really communicate, oh, this is what their worldview looks like, and this is why it's incompatible with Australia's, you know, Australia's political, social order. And incompatible with the way that even a right-wing extremist would want to live their life ultimately. I mean, I'm yeah. sure that in their mind they think of the benefits to themselves based on their ideas, but the reality of it would be far, far, far oh. different and we've seen that all throughout history. Oh, I was talking to a uh, former policeman in, uh, in New Zealand recently mm -hmm. and they were saying that for some of the people that represent themselves as being part of particularly white supremacist movements, they actually have very little understanding of the political ideology to which they apparently um, subscribe. For them, it's about community, you know, it's mm -hmm. about belonging, it's about feeling like they're part of this in-group that offers them some sort of meaning or protection even. Uh, so it's, for a lot of them, there has been very little engagement uh, on mm -hmm. a political or ideological level. So is that the, I mean, I guess talking about not a solution but maybe a cultural antidote to these types of ideas is reaching out an engagement and building a community that, that can accommodate people's needs and listening to people and I, mean, I guess at its basic level providing opportunities for yeah. people, well, is that part of it? Oh, absolutely. So there have been quite successful de-radicalisation programs, particularly in Germany and Sweden, and those programs have catered to the entire extremist spectrum from jihadists to right-wing extremists. And essentially, you will never de-radicalise someone by yelling at them that they're wrong. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's never changed anyone's behaviour. <laughs> Not really, no. Um, and so what they've found is that there are a number of approaches that that do that do reduce the rate of people re-engaging with extremist networks. Mm -hmm. In Australia, we have a group called Community Action for Preventing Extremism, or CAPE. They're run by All Together Now, and they actually work quite closely with, uh, with people who are looking at, at leaving um, mm -hmm. an extremist movement. And they also have some really good information on their website about you know, about the community and how the community can, what warning factors the community should be looking for and how they should be handled. So they start talking about, okay, if you are worried about someone, maybe they've started saying things that are different or maybe mm -hmm. they've started um, supporting or celebrating the Christchurch attack. Well, you know, you know, CAPE have um, information to assist with that and they also assist law enforcement in keeping the community safe. It's so interesting to think that, I mean obviously we both work for an educational institution and education as always is just the cornerstone of helping to support and enlighten people and, and sometimes I guess free them from these limiting situations and beliefs. What, what's the future with right-wing terrorism here do you think? What can, what can we expect based on I guess our history and the circumstances that have propelled these ideas from generation to generation, what do you think the future will look like for this? I hate to be pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I thought you might be. <laughs> uh, look, it's been here for a long time and mm. it's not going to go away overnight. One of the things that struck me with the Christchurch attack is that we have there an individual who had submersed himself in international right-wing extremist um, literature and also developed familiarity with international right-wing terrorists. So you saw that with his inscriptions on his weapons, so he cites quite a, a number of recent right-wing terrorists. 
Now, when it comes to right-wing terrorism, we've got some ideas about how they operate and what it might look like. One of those ideas is put forward by a German academic um, where he says essentially what, what we have to worry about is a hive terrorism. Mm. So this is where you have individuals who have no direct or previous ties with an extremist group or network and they suddenly, they radicalise very quickly mm. and then they engage spontaneously in acts of terrorism. And that's very difficult to confront because, you know, they might not even, you know, follow any websites or leave any digital trail beyond the ordinary that might lead investigators to apprehend them. So what we have to do is we have to be aware that, that things move fast now mm. and the information is, is all out there, it's all on the internet, regardless of what Facebook does, it's still readily accessible. And so we have to be aware of individuals who might self-radicalise or be exposed to these ideas on the internet through international counterparts and who may then engage spontaneously in acts of violence in Australia. Uh, I think police have a big job ahead of them. I know that there have been many, um, many people in law enforcement, both state and federally, who have been watching this for a long time. Mm. And so uh, it's not something that they have never been exposed to before. They've got a fairly good handle on it. Mm -hmm. I think what we need to do uh, as members of the community is also keep, keep an eye out, but also if you see something, reach out because police uh, and law enforcement, they actually can't do anything uh, without good intelligence from the community. You know, mm -hmm. So we need to give them the information they need to do their job in keeping us safe. Christy, thank you for this absolutely fascinating discussion uh, this morning. I really appreciate your time and thank you again so much for talking with us at CUC Stories. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU Stories with you. For more information on CSU Stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.